0: Welcome to Fred Basin's Diaries, read here by Clive Farahar. This is a book collector podcast sponsored by Adrian Harrington Rare Books of Tunbridge Wells. Fred Basin's Diaries, Part 11.
1: 1946. Harry M called today, and do you know what he called for, and what he bought? He paid me £2 cash for the original manuscript of my article in the 1945 Saturday book. Said it was a little masterpiece. I put my own price on it, £2, and afterwards he said he'd come quite prepared to pay lots more. Well, I never did. He's a sane, wise, very business-like Jew, and a grand chap. But surely he must be potted to buy a manuscript in a penny exercise book. It's all so strange, and it's not even April the 1st. I wrote an article in Bandwagon and in it I mentioned that I was single. An unknown fan wrote such a nice friendly letter and asked if she could see me. I said that of course she could. Would she care to share a meal on the top floor of Lyons in Coventry Street? The Help Yourself Department? I'd meet her outside the London Pavilion, I described myself and said I'd wear a cap and carry a copy of Titbits and be there at six on Thursday. I was there on time. The fan arrived at 6.15 with her mother and father and brother. I said, what on earth? She said, surely you didn't expect me to meet a strange man in the West End unprotected? Unprotected, crikey. She was six foot one and at least 16 stone. Well, I am five feet four inches and I seldom exceed eight stone four pounds. Blimey, she could have lifted me with one hand and thrown me yards. But I had a meal and her daddy paid. Dash it all. She wanted to see me. I was on view, and surely I was worth two and fourpence for the entertainment. Worth it or not, he paid, and has since become a client for my second-hand books. So this was an okay date. You could have knocked me down with a feather when I opened the envelope and took out the invite from a film company to make a film. Me the star in a short talkie. Well, there's no waving my hair, alas, and my teeth needs attention. To make me into a film star would take a proper a bit of doing. But the film company offered to pay me a fee and so I'd have been potty not to have had a basin full. They'd seen two books I'd written called Toys for Nothing. Toys have to be pretty well for nothing in Walworth or the kids don't get any. Would I make a film on this subject, they said. So I writes back and says, I'm game and when do they want the balloon to go up? Well, to cut a long story short, a posh car calls for me and I'm whirled up to Wardle Street to a studio on the top floor. There's me in my best bib and a clean shave and together with 50 matchboxes, bits of coloured paper, matchsticks, glue, oddments, cotton reels, cigarette boxes and fag cards. And there's the producer. He produced a small whiskey what kept my pecker up in this strange world. Cameramen, light experts and lots of people walking about doing nothing whatever as quickly as possible. I'm told to put my goods and chattels on a large dining room table and get to work whilst they set the lights. Then a bloke looks at me through a bit of coloured glass and decides I have to be made up. I resent this and I'm for punching him on the nose. As I am, I so I am. But they explained it all to me. I won't photograph well unless I'm made up. Well, a lovely lady dabs a lot of different things on my dial whilst I keep my eyes shut. And when I'm told to open them again, lo and behold, I'm blooming handsome. Lights are ready, camera on wheels is waiting, men earning 30 quid a week are waiting for me. I feel proper bucked with myself. I have come on a bundle and no mistake. They produced a couple of child actors, boy and girl, who were as cool as ice cream to keep me company. They stood and registered amazement as they watched me make toys out of oddments. It took three days to make the film and I was paid eight guineas for my time and trouble. A quid on an eight-to-one winner would have been an easier way of earning this sum, but I have, in my time, slaved to earn a pound, and so I accept the sum gratefully. The bloke in charge paid me cash down on the nail. Three minutes after one fellow said, cut, that's the job. Another was paying me, and that's the business I understand. I must have been the poorest film star ever. Until paid, I had one and fourpence in my pocket and was unable to treat the man who had produced me the whisky. But I never owe. So the very next morning, I got a postal order and sent it to him to cash and to treat himself at my expense. Being a bibliographer to a collected author, and Morme's first editions are among the most sought-after all over the world, is a thankless task. I've had to answer considerably over 3,000 letters in the past 15 years sent to me by bibliophiles on points regarding his first edition. The rarest Maugham item is without doubt the paper-bound edition of A Man of Honour, which was published by Chapman and All in 1903. It was originally published in the fortnightly review by W.L. Courtney, who thought well of it. At Maugham's request, the publishers bound up 250 copies of the sheets of this play, for sale in the actual theatre during the two performances which the stage society gave of it. The venture was not a particular success, and Maugham told me that he doubted if more than 60 of the 250 sold, and that to the best of his belief the rest were finally pulped. Well, even allowing a margin of 100 in existence and the 150 pulped, There are a thousand collectors wanting this rarity to complete their Maugham collections and a clean copy would be very reasonably priced at 20 quid. This play was reissued by W. Einemann in 1912. I've not got a copy, alas. Hitler destroyed mine in 1943. In case someone may happen to come across a copy of this stiff paper grey bound play, they will not only have 20 pounds in their hand if it's a clean sound copy, but will make some more collector very, very happy if they'll sell it to him or her. At 10 o'clock, a talent scout calls. He says he's been told I'm quite a card and have an amazing collection of autographs. Would I care to show them to him with a view of an engagement on television? I asked if this view and television would be for money. And he says, of course. So I shows him some 4,000 signed photos, etc., He's amazed and amused. He says, I'll do very nicely. He says that I'm quite a find. Could I go on that very afternoon? And I says, yes, of course. At 12.30, I'm on a coach outside the BBC going to Alexandra Palace. At one i I'm going through my stuff with a nice looking glamour lady named Joan Gilbert. At 2, I'm eating lunch in the canteen. At 2.20, I'm having another and more careful rehearsal. At 3.30, I'm on for four minutes. At 4.15, I'm paid in cash by another pretty woman whose name, strangely enough, is Leslie Clay. At 4.30, I'm in a coach driving back to the BBC. At 5.45, I'm in a bus on my way to Warworth. And at 6.25, I'm at my table having an hot tin of peas by way of celebration. Yes, they give me wind, but I loves them. And I deserve some celebrating for my first television engagement for nearly six years. I did a Pioneer three-minute show in 1940. Miss Joan Gilbert of Television Picture Page has given me a little job. She says that I'm excellent for television myself. And if I can find any people so quaint as myself who do the usual or the unusual as good as me, she'll give them a date in Picture Page and give me 15 shillings a time for my trouble. So I am now a talent scout. The things I do for England, home and beauty. Hope Norman Collins approves. Wrote a long article in the Camberwell Observer asking for amateur talent and explaining the exact sort of talent that is needed for television. Article appeared yesterday. Today I've had a 117 applications. Christ, has all Camberwell just been waiting all these years for Freddie Basin to discover them? 1947, in Thoreau's Walden I've come across a line that I must retain, I should not talk so much about myself if there were anybody else who I knew so well. And the reason for retaining this is that in the 956 articles that I've written during the last 20 years or so, I've been the predominating feature. I did this, that and the other, I felt this and that, and I saw and spoke to those and them. As far as anyone can know oneself, I do know myself, and I must write. So I must continue to write about myself. It's logic and a cast-iron alibi. Today, I bought 26 volumes of the works of Miss M. Braddon for 50 shillings, all in green cloth and uniform, 7 by 4 inches. Not quite crown octavo. I never realised she'd written 26 different novels. I must offer these to Dr. Montague Summers, as he's the world's greatest expert on our novels. It's really queer that such a queer man reads with such relish, this old-fashioned novelist. Where is W.B. Maxwell, her son, now? He wrote The Guarded Flame, a grand novel. Is he dead? I must find out. Might buy Mummy's novels. Worth a chance, I'll get his autograph anyhow, and I can stick it in one of the volumes as a sort of association item. The things one has to do, I sent John Macefield a Christmas card once in the hope I'd get a reply, for which I enclosed a stamped addressed envelope. The only reply was a printed card in the third person. Mr John Macefield thanks you for your good wishes. So chilly. Let me tell you my diary right away. Success ain't all it's cracked up to be. I've never felt more like a fish out of water as when I recently broadcast in the Books and Authors series for the BBC. All the other blokes had old school ties and an air of ale fellow well met about them. They could talk proper like, and although they were all very kind, I felt out of it. No, no, they were not a bit patronising. Real ladies and gentlemen may come down to your level for a while, and they do it in a nice way. But I saw only too well I wasn't in their street. I suppose it's all a matter of background and breeding and all that sort of thing. I have never posed. I am as I am. I'm a cockney, and try as I may, aints and blimeys do creep into my sentences. I was told years ago by both Arnold Bennett and W.S. Maugham not to change, to always be myself. But I've come to the conclusion that that ain't the best of advice. Where's it brought me? On the foot of an awfully shaky ladder, the Ladder of Fame. And now, how shaky is it and how futile it all seems? Last week, I returned from a lecture tour. It was my first experience of giving lectures on books and authors. And I had to talk to several groups, which consisted mainly of women. I didn't make any notes, as I sort of felt that if I kept on consulting, I'd feel long-winded and stodgy. And if I read a paper, I'd get all tied up. I stood up on the platform and I just talked on books, on writers and on me. I have an idea I talk more about me than about other things. But James Agate said one was right to talk about oneself if you did interested in unusual things. I've always tried to do the unusual or keep one step ahead. Or if I did something or collected something, I've done it in the biggest way within my limited power. So when the opportunity came to give lectures, I grasped it with a feeling I could do it on my head. The trouble about writing or about talking to audiences is that one's ideas are on record and very liable to be used in evidence against one. I say I don't care for the novels of Hugh Walpole and lo and behold, forevermore, I'm labelled as a fellow who dislikes Walpole's novels. I write and say I'm not keen on digests and will never allow anything of mine to be digested unless I get paid a reasonable fee and forever I'm against digests. I say and write a great many things in a year, but surely one's allowed to change one's mind and to outgrow a previous opinion. I long for success. I wanted a fan mail. Why couldn't Freddie Basin have a crowd of admirers and an exciting mail each morning? Well, I don't know about admirers, but I do most certainly get a large mail and it's very expensive luxury. i finding that I spend about 15 shillings a week answering folks' letters And of course, sending out catalogues of books, etc. for sale. Why do it? Why don't ignore them? I just can't. I feel that if somebody spends tuppence aptly to say that she or he likes my work and where can they find more of it, it's up to me to tell them and to express my thanks for their kind interest. Since last November, I find I've written 51 articles for some 30 different magazines and I've received over 3,000 letters most people would say that judging from this mail I've arrived that I have a strong group of fans and kind readers and genuine admirers. Well, maybe I have, but what I lack is what I shall never be able to get and that's what background's all about and the ability to carry this success into other stations and circles above my own humble level. I cannot discuss Einstein's theories. I know next to nothing about Gide. Huxley's latest book is so many words to me and I can't for the life of me discuss James Joyce's writings. And I've been talking to literary circles and parties and the rest and found these and many other perplexing subjects being discussed and am not able to add my share to the conversation because I knew that if I spoke, I'd put my foot right into it. I've given up parties with polite pressure of work as an alibi. I didn't tell them that the work was pushing a barrel load of books up to Bermondsey and standing beside it to sell comics at a penny and all manner of other books at threepence and Sixpence. Perhaps I was ashamed to tell this class of folks of my real work. I wouldn't have been ashamed years ago. That's what I mean. I ain't no longer being myself. And I'm finding that the success I long for is empty. It's empty unless you have within you something to back it up so that when you go to the BBC and chat with Calder Marshall or Esketh Pearson and a lot of other noted folks, you don't feel out of it. On lecture platforms I hold my audience, at least they don't go to sleep, but I realised I had nothing to back up my opinions with. And who was I to criticise a fellow author's writings, especially if he had a university education against my LCC one? A man is very often valued at his own valuation, but there is a limit to bluff. And when one's talk is over, there comes question time, and the questions they ask. Golly, I begin to dread the questions. They seem to spend all day digging up the most awkward ones they could. What's the use of asking me about 18th century French literature when I can't even read French? There's a moral in this, and by Jove, I think I'm in a position now to point it out. Don't try to climb the steps of fame in the literary world or even the world of radio. Unless within yourself you have that certain something that enables you to make friends easily in stations and classes as you go up. And yet have the graciousness to remember your old friends who knew you when you was down and out. It's something that perhaps we can all learn. But I'm for thinking it's rather more something within you. You have it or you don't. I don't. So I'm going back to my little attic down in Woolworth and away from the lecture tours, unless I really need the fee. Of course I shall continue to write my little bits from time to time. I may even do the occasional broadcast, and of course I shall do television, for i have my very best there. The unseen audience suits me, but I've finished with fame-seeking. I can do quite well without it. At St James's Theatre tonight, i viewed with disgust a very celebrated British film star, Very Drunk. I realise fully that the film stars do get drunk, but I sort of feel that they were household names and young fellows hate them and copy their clothes. Such actors might get drunk in private. And strangely enough, at this same play, I saw a noted review actress having a nice old scratch, which she could have easily done in the ladies room. And that's all I have to record, as the play was rather lousy. Blimey, perhaps the actress was conveying a criticism of the play and the actor was drowning in his sorrows.
0: That was Clive Faraha reading part 11 of Fred Basin's Diaries. It is a book collector podcast and was sponsored by Adrian Harrington Rare Books. If you enjoyed it, why not consider subscribing to The Book Collector, a quarterly journal in print and online for all those who take pleasure from books. Thebookcollector.co.uk has all the details.